0: The New Testament is a collection of texts which has had a profound impact upon the history of the world. In this episode, I talk to a PhD student in New Testament studies, Ian Mills, and ask him several questions that I have as an interested and invested layman in the subject. I hope you learned something and find it as interesting as I did, and maybe it might open the door to some new topic of inquiry that you've not looked into before. If you enjoyed the episode and want to support me, then please subscribe to the podcast and also check out the YouTube channel, Digital Gnosis, and subscribe there. And now I bring to you a conversation with Ian Mills. If we're going to talk about um, some historical things, I've I've got like all my little um, pink tabs, which are historical questions in the New Testament. (laughs)
1: Are you you going to grill me on Pauline chronology, Galatians versus Acts? Because I Um, should have reviewed the details on that one.
0: (laughs) I mean, I... We can go into into general things. I, I might ask you, well, and we're we're live now, by the way. Um, but I I might ask you, or I will ask you first, I guess, what you thought of that impromptu conversation. Then with Pine Creek, was it? Because um, he's he's a very good um, questioner as well. I think he's really effective at what he does. Have you have you watched much of his stuff before? Were you kind of familiar of what to expect?
1: I watched Laura, so there have been two videos featuring Laura. The first one is called The Next Bart Ehrman is Currently a Christian. And I thought that was a funny video, um, a good video for the most part. Uh, the fact that he kept saying, I'm in love with her, and besides my w- wife, there's another woman I love, um, I thought was curious. Uh, we don't usually talk about males we admire in the same language, and I think it was it's somewhat unfortunate, but... Um, I, I'm glad he featured her because Laura is a brilliant human being and one of my friends. Um, and then the interview with her, I thought was really, really well done, and I thought it was it was great. And I was honored that he wanted to talk to me. Um, I thought we were going to talk. This isn't a criticism, but I thought we were going to talk more about New Testament and early Christianity than about my personal piety. But I totally get that that's his shtick. I just hadn't wasn't as familiar with um, his channel, and respect that. And um, I'm honored again that he would have me to talk to talk about it.
0: I'm being informed by uh, Harley, who you were just uh, talking to a little bit then, um, that everyone, half my audience, is still in the Discord chat. So, um, people might come and watch this a bit later. But, um, I I was wondering then, are you are you familiar with like the street epistemology stuff at all, or any of? No, no, you never come Sorry. across. No, is is, is all right? It's just because what um. Doug, I, he wouldn't classify himself as like a street epistemologist as such, like some people like Anthony Magnabosco, you might have come across or uh, Peter Boghossian. Um They're kind of, it, it's, it's sort of counter apologetics, but it's not like, it's not strictly atheist. It's more, it's like, um you know, Greg Kukul, who would say like the Columbo tactic in apologetics, like just asking questions. It's just um, essentially that it's like, um, rather than getting bogged down, in like crazy weird like ontology of philosophy and stuff it's like just ask questions and um see see if we can reach the same justification and i think it's it's generally pretty effective when yeah yeah, when people you know when people are really really confident in things but i I think considering you weren't even aware of it you're kind of uh, dealing with some of those confidence scale questions and things like that was actually quite interesting you you know you were just honest and it kind of came across well thanks yeah. Um so I guess what I wanted to talk about was um New Testament history. Now I I've not done like a a degree course or anything like that in the New Testament, but as an individual it's something that's really interesting. Um and about I and Doug, Doug told you at the end, right, for me, that about two years ago, I kind of became a Christian in a Calvinist, like fundamentalist style church. Um, so that really shaped, um, I adopted a load of like, you know, like gr- how that group kind of thought. I had a conversation with Doug that made me sort of doubt Christianity and I became agnostic. And now I'm sort of exploring um, liberal Christianity, maybe the idea of um experiential or being part of the ecclesial community, studying the Bible and stuff, but just being okay with the fact that I don't know God exists or that Jesus resurrected or anything like that. But um, through this process, I've gone from maybe a year ago, you know, like having to save people from hell and, you know, like, um, are there other are historical problems in the Bible? No, it's perfect, infallible to, to having like, actually, um, you know, like hang on this bit in the old Testament, is weird where it affirms um, like other deities or like ancient Near Eastern creation myths or something. Um, yeah. And so so now I do have a bunch of these historical questions. So I guess we can go through that. Is there anything else you want to kind of comment on before we get into a few of those questions then?
1: No, I'm happy to happy to discuss it. I'm not sure I'm a representative of liberal Christianity necessarily, but I am someone who is politically liberal and I am a Christian. So I guess, uh, I mean, I don't do the positive, um, for people who haven't seen Doug's project, I don't do positive theology for the most part um i am a christian agnostic i believe this stuff is true i don't think we can um if knowledge is true justified belief plus whatever gets you out of the gettier problem i don't think we can justify most of my christian beliefs um using the ordinary ways that we go about adjudicating uh explanations for to get us through to get us through life um so uh yeah, so I'm happy to answer the questions that I can help answer or elucidate or shed light on, so. Um.
0: Okay, awesome. So, um, there's a couple of things then that come to my mind, right? And the first one is to do with, like, um, historical kind of Jesus. Um, that's the first avenue of, like, questions that I suppose I have. And the other one is to do with, like, Paul's chronologies and stuff. Is there one of them that you think would be more appropriate to go down, just if we're living... Historical
1: Jesus, because Pauline okay. chronology is a lot. <laughs>
0: Okay, awesome. So let me find a nice uh, pink, pink one. So um, Matthew ten, um, uh, verse twenty three. Uh, For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And then, yep. um, I when. When I first became aware of this, um, the thing I was listening to kind of linked it up with Mark as well, where Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming um, in 1324. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Um, and yeah, that I, I think um, you struggle with any amount of harmonization, maybe to if, if that if that is right, if that's what that is describing Jesus saying um, this, this is going to happen immediately. Um you'd probably struggle to say, well, well, that actually means, um, you know, this person, uh, the Romans doing this or this like harmonization and stuff. It seems quite explicit. What's your take on, um, what those, those verses kind of mean who Jesus, um, thought he was, what, what he thought was going to happen after his death.
1: Yeah. So the, the problem with the word meaning is that meaning is that it has too many, right. Um, so what those words mean can be a number of, there's layers at which we can discuss that. Um, there can be the historical Jesus um, where I think I'll just give a snapshot and then we can come back to it. The historical Jesus, I think these suggest to us not that we actually know Jesus said these exact words. In fact, because they're written in Greek, he almost certainly didn't, but we know we get a general picture from this along with the, general, the, the wider portrayal of Jesus in our sources that he was some sort of apocalyptic prophet that prophesied the end of the world was coming. Um, I don't do a lot of work in that area, but I'm happy to talk about it and I'm interested in it. Um, I do a lot more work at the level of what is Mark think he's doing with this um and what does Mark think this means and what does Matthew think this means what does Luke think this means and I don't know that I am 100% sure on this yet I think Mark probably thought the world was about to end because it looks like most Christians did there are Christians who sort of qualify this and problematize this Luke in fact does in rewriting some of the Gospels um and sort of creates a space for a longer delay. I and mean, we have Christians in the New Testament already dealing with the fact that Jesus didn't come back as fast as they expected. First um, Corinthians 7, Paul basically says, don't get married because the end—the world is about to end. And obviously he was wrong about that. Um, but the Gospel of John can even, but the Gospel of John canonized alongside Mark and Paul, I think reads as a sort of one way of dealing with that problem, which is saying, look, the world did end in the person of Jesus. Um, Jesus coming to the the um coming to the resurrection in lazarus uh lazarus resurrection um jesus identifies himself as the resurrection and we have a hard time hearing that today um but he is t- saying there is this event that's in the future that uh, that jewish piety talks a lot about i'm that event um so we already have within the new testament like layers of interpretation on top of that dealing with it so another sense of meaning is then what is the church what is a theologian what um how do they come to understand that and that's a you know there is no one answer to that there's lots of different ways of reading that text and so that's a third level of interesting um and i don't um and i'm happy to talk about any one of those that are interesting to you but those don't seem to me to actually um depend on one another i think mark uses jesus's state so like mark 7 jesus doesn't say what Mark says he said, and yet he can use the saying of Jesus to become the abolition of food laws. Um, so there's like the literary level and the historical level are are operate independent to some degree, although they clearly relate to each other. Um, and then the way the church came to read these texts um, often does not depend at all on what Mark thought he was doing with some teaching of Jesus. Um, so what do these things mean? I mean, what are you interested in? <laughs>
0: Well, I guess maybe maybe then it might be more appropriate to first um, take a, a step back from specific issues, right, and talk about. What does, you know, what does it mean for what, what is the Bible? um, What would it mean for it to be inspired or um, for, for it to be so, you know, some divine special text in some sense. And um, like, for me personally, something I found interesting on this was um, Pete ends has a book, how the Bible really works, where he talks about, um, perhaps what we do all too often is come to it looking for like a a rule book. Like here's, here's a bunch of contentful propositions that you have to believe about things. And, um, you know, he's like, um, well, if that's the case, look right here in Proverbs, um, answer, you know, answer not the fool according to his folly answer the fool according to his folly. Like, um, well, what, if that's the case, what does it mean? It's not that the Bible isn't that there's more, there's more to it, but for you, like, so for you, what does it, what is the Bible then? What is, um, what is inspiration what you know what are these axioms that you're bringing to the text to be able to see that in it and not be like um well this is just you know bronze age nonsense or like which is maybe what some people go when they start thinking that way
1: yeah no i think that's absolutely right i really love peden's work on this um and i don't know all of his corpus but what i've read of him is awesome um so i mean the bible cannot be the kind of book that Evangelical fundamentalists, the people I grew up with believe it is. And my favorite illustration of this is just what did God say at the baptism? Uh, whether or not God used the second person singular or the third person singular pronoun, you or he is my beloved son, I mean, or I'm well pleased, um, is different between the two gospels. And um, the, you just can't reconcile these things. Um, whether or not to bring a staff on the mission journey. Um, things like that. These are places where Matthew is copying out of Mark verbatim uh, and changing things. Um, the Bible can't be the kind of book that they want it to be. And like Peter and said, it can't be a simple instruction manual. Um, I think Paul and Matthew would have clawed each other's eyes out. I think Matthew is the kind of Christian that Paul is writing against in Galatians. Obviously, Matthew the gospel is written after Galatians but it's the kind of Christianity that he detests and there's lots of ways to see that and yet as a church we put these books together and say this is scripture I am partially an agnostic because I don't think the sort of systematic theology project actually works we can't we can't reconstruct out of this a fully articulated metaphysics or eschaton and things like that Um, I think what these are are these are books that are pointing us to jesus and who he was and this and almost more important than that although that certainly these are things are interdependent pointing us to um god raising jesus from the dead has implications for how you live your life and this when you start reading paul that way and reading the gospels that way um and not looking for a systematic theology or perfectly coherent history um i think that that changes things um, and then the Bible, of course, isn't one thing, of course, too. I mean, it is a collection of books. It's a fourth century anthology um, that has been assembled. And to this day, churches have different canons, not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. The Ethiopic church has several additional books. The Syriac church didn't get the Catholic epistles or the apocalypse of John in Syriac at all until the sixth century. And it's still the apocalypse doesn't play a role in the liturgy. It is a human collection of human books that are pointing to if I'm going to speak theologically and not as a historian, um, which I've articulated in the interview with Doug, these are different ways of talking in, in important ways. Um, it points to God raised Jesus from the dead.
0: What What does it mean to you then to say that um, this is an inspired text? So I think when some people hear that, they think in... in um, in some sense, there's expectations they would bring to it maybe, or, um, you know, like, like, well, if I, if I were writing my best thing, then, you know, it would have all the truths that I know. So if this is God, that's that much greater than me writing his truths, then, you know, there's nothing in there about how to make an iPhone or that, you know, there's, there's errors in there. What does, so what does like inspiration mean in that sense? Or what, you know, what does it mean for God to be the author in some sense behind it?
1: Yeah. I don't think God is the author. Um, Okay. Uh I do think it's inspired, but that doesn't have a lot of content. I think you I mean, my way of doing this as a Christian is you sort of go to the Bible to figure out what inspiration could mean. And what you find is four versions of the same story that contradict with each other. You find, like you said, proverbs that say opposite things. You find Ezekiel polemicizing against Deuteronomy, which is polemicizing against Genesis. Um this this sort of thing is um just the nature of scripture. So it has to be something different. Um, and like I laid out in my interview with doug uh ultimately, my belief isn't grounded in this book being a particular kind of book um but in how um in how the belief about the resurrection of Jesus changes the kind of person I am um and that motivates me to continue believing
0: we, would you say in and, I, and i'm I'm sorry if I'm pulling too far away from the history here no. I'll try and bring it let um, do do what you want but- but is um, would it? Would would you say, in some sense, then, um, that you you're like you approach the Bible in like a non-cognitivist sense? Like it's not even about the the content of like um, what what it's saying as much as it is about like the experience or the you know like the reading. No, okay, I've got no. The...
1: I'm, I mean, I mean, as a historian, I approach these things as if they are first century, you know, reading the Gospels, first century texts um no more i mean you have to read texts by analogy this is how we even do philology how we come to understand what a word shows up what that means is by comparing it to other texts so i treat it like any other text when i'm acting as a historian um as a theologian um these are the best sources we have for how the early church behaved what they believed um and the sorts of things that jesus said and did um but i don't act as a theologian very often um i sort of uh um I'm a practicing Christian, but my practice has very little theological uh, systematization as part of it.
0: Okay. Also, yeah, I'll try. I'll try not to. um I'll try and ask questions then in a way that do make it clear, like you know, when one's like in your area of expertise and one's like your personal, individual, like opinion, so to speak. Right. Um, I guess it,
1: it is important to me. That, I mean, any explanatory chain that invokes God as a link in the explanatory chain has a very short half life. It's our experience of the world, and so when you were doing the sorts of behaviors, um the practices, the ways of adjudicating beliefs in our ordinary life. Um, god can't figure as part of that and i've I've already explained that again that was part of doug's interview which which is like you can't do abductive reasoning or analogical reasoning for that matter um if you're going to allow for the supernatural because it's always the simplest explanation it's always simpler that fairies are responsible than that i ate a certain food and it led to these symptoms um and we don't want our doctors our judges or the person who's trying to figure out where we left our car to allow for the possibility of the supernatural so that's never going to be part of it um and so when i'm acting as a historian when i'm working on the history of the new testament um the inspiration the supernatural have to be excluded or else we just can't do anything um we can't make our, we can't have arguments um because of course it's a simpler explanation that god just made this happen um and so it breaks it breaks history um but yeah so right it it is it is good to distinguish between those two things because the way i read this in my personal piety um is often different or um is dependent in an interesting way without direct relationships uh to the historical conclusions I think one can draw about the text.
0: Well I think this is something that um something I've found it over my past kind of six months or whatever is that um even though I think that that the god I had created out of like um on God and a few basic philosophy things and stuff like that were is I I don't believe in that because those arguments don't succeed anymore and I don't know if I'll ever be able to say I know those things but I still can't shake um like the way I act in the world or what I like I have this belief in a god being there at some level and I don't even like I can't even articulate what that means and I could even say like like I talk to atheists and I'm like uh well i completely you know i completely understand what they're saying but i'm like but we we just have this different kind of i don't know maybe maybe we were talking about like blicks and stuff the other day maybe a blick is the right way of talking about it but um yeah and it, so that's like my personal um thing and then if i were to talk about you know like but even then i'd go in my capacity and talk to other um other christians who i think are maybe arguing in fallacious ways for god and i think that can lead to maybe a damaging type of Christianity in it. And, and I'll, I'll oppose that in the same way that I would oppose um, you know, like atheist Republic memes about um, religion flies you into buildings yeah. and science flies you to the moon, whatever. So I, I do think it is, I, I I'm with you. I, I get that distinction because in my weird personal belief that I have, like what, what do I know? Like <laughs> that's not. Yeah. Um. So, so then um, to talk about the, I guess the synoptic Gospels would be the place to kind of start in general, right? If we're, if we're talking about the life of Jesus, what are the synoptic Gospels? Um, how, whereabouts would we kind of date them? And what also, what evidence do we have, um, for them being dated to, to those kind of times?
1: Awesome. I love this kind of stuff. I was kind of expecting this to be what Doug's interview would be about. So I'm glad this is happening. So thank you so much. Um, uh, so Gospel of Mark um uh early and what we can really do is we can give a post um uh, early and, and after right uh date and i think um the prediction of the destruction of the temple in the gospel of mark gives us really really good reasons to believe that it was written after 70 and it's not even that it's impossible that somebody could have predicted the temple would be destroyed um, this is the response people have is, isn't it possible that just Jesus predicted it, um, whether it was supernatural or just watching politics go? And yes, that's totally possible. It's totally possible that Jesus thought, uh, predicted before 70, that the temple was going to be destroyed. But the fact that Mark brings this up Reveals to you that this has already happened because you don't bring up a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. I mean, you don't, um, if Mark is writing 40 years later or however long later and it hasn't happened yet, he's not going to tell you that Jesus said this. And Josephus is the great example of this. People say, yeah, but Josephus said there were people before 70 who predicted the destruction of the temple. Yes, he did. And why he's mentioning that in his Antiquities of the Jews is because it's happened now. And so he wants to say, look, this has happened. Um, And these people predicted it rightly. Uh, So that gives us an early date. It's definitely after 70. The late date has to be done just by relative priority. So Mark is being used by Matthew and Luke. And it's really, really easy to see that and to demonstrate that. Mark and priority is sort of the least controversial claim in gospel studies um, currently, and for very good reason. Um, And so you then end up doing sort of relative priority, that Luke is using Josephus, which gives you an early date but not an end date. And I think Ignatius has. has written Gospels, um, so does Poppius, uh, um, so does Second Clement, and so we have sort of a cluster of things around the beginning of the second century that seem to have Gospels that are depending on Mark already, um, and so you end up getting this window between about 170 and 70 in which Mark had to have been written, um, and you really can't be more precise than that. I don't see much evidence for getting, for narrowing that window um so mark could have been written in 72 just as well as it could have been written in 99 um because it doesn't take 10 years for somebody to get a book and write a new book based on that that could happen two weeks apart not very likely but it could have happened
0: is there any um, evidence that would suggest before because you know like when i when i speak to some people you know they're quite or. Um... That I don't I don't know if you saw the um Frank Chorek interview on capturing Christianity where he was arguing, you know, that that the entire New Testament is written before the destruction of the temple. Um it's crazy. And yeah, I don't but is is there any you know, would that would there be any historical evidence that you're aware of that would point towards that? I don't know, like a, a fragment or something or
1: <laughs> the the best argument i think this is wrong but the best argument that mark was written before 70 is that mark describes um mark says that no st- no stone will re- re- remain on top of another in jerusalem looking at the buildings around and that isn't what happened there were buildings that stayed standing and this is an argument you'll sometimes hear by apologists and so i mean it's sort of a funny one because then makes jesus predict something that's not true but um all the same what you then have um is mark and they say if mark had actually known about the destruction of the temple and was trying to destroy describe that he wouldn't have described it in this way the problem with that is the kind of detail we can expect mark to be responsible for mark makes geographical errors mark uh, miscites scripture um that is the the hebrew bible um mark uh Um, mark doesn't seem to know the geography of palestine particularly well um he just he has to explain to his audience why jews wash wash their hands um this is probably somebody living not in palestine um and so what he knows is that rome destroyed jerusalem and particularly the temple which is the center of jewish well of some kinds of jewish piety um and uh he describes um, this destruction of the city in a in a really normal way, which is you level all the buildings, and just the fact that that's not literally what happened doesn't mean Mark isn't describing an event that he knows happened in reasonable ways. Um, okay, and I don't know you any other to, evidence. Sorry, just,
0: do you do you want to touch just quickly then? Um, I suppose on like the the ordering. So so you've said like Mark is in this kind of bracket, and then how we would go about um deciding um because i i think you go with like mark being the first and then how you decide where the others uh come from on top of that good.
1: favorite topic in the world synoptic problem um so how do we know matthew is using mark and not the other way around there's a bunch of arguments for this um there's some pretty bad ones that are popular which is that matthew corrects lots of things in mark he corrects mark in geography corrects uh mark mark's um miss citations and things like that and that's not a very good argument because of course people can make texts worse or less accurate. We have examples of later texts that introduce problems into the Gospels. Um, but there are a bunch of better arguments. And my favorite one of those, I mean, there's things like it harmonizing the go- or um, changing the Gospel into a Gospel that is more recognizable from early Christianity. So if Matthew and Mark are, are dependent on each other, which we know they are, um, Matt, there's 660 verses in Mark about 600 of them are coded with some verbatim agreement into Matthew. Um, there's over 30 strings of 16-word verbatim agreements uh, being copied f- between Mark and Matthew. So they're definitely literarily dependent on each other. Oh, and I should also notice note that Matthew and Mark copy over editorial interjections from one to the other. So not only is it Jesus' words and descriptions of like events, but Mark in Mark 13 says, let the reader understand. And Matthew copies that over verbatim. Um, It's a sort of editorial comment that gets copied over. So they're dependent on each other. How do we know which comes first? My favorite argument is the argument from editorial fatigue, which was um, most fully articulated in Mark Goodacre's fatigue in the synoptics. And what he shows is there are several places where Matthew and Mark tell the same story in the same words. And Matthew and Luke, um, also using Mark, will introduce a change early in the story that is characteristic of that gospel. So Luke likes the number 10, and at one point he changes over a detail a number from three to 10. Uh, Matthew, um, uh, I'll just do one of my favorite examples in full. Um, Luke reorganizes the sequence of Mark's gospel um, and creates this this Lucan road trip. Um, So he reorganizes these events. Um, And one of the events he reorganizes is the feeding of the 5,000. And he puts the feeding of the 5,000 in the city of Bethsaida, which is reportedly a major fishing village. The problem is, in the Gospel of Mark, where he's copying this out of, Mark has this in a deserted place, in a desert. And so when you go read Luke, early on it says, you know, places this event in the middle of Bethsaida, this major fishing village. Um, And then as you keep reading, it reverts to Mark's wording, where the disciples come to Jesus and say, where are we going to find food here in this deserted place? And Jesus responds, have them send have them go out to the surrounding villages and bring food. But the reader of Luke who doesn't know that he's using Mark says, but Luke, you just told us he's in the middle of a city. Like he doesn't need to go to surrounding villages. We're not in a deserted place. We're right here in a city. Well, this has happened because Luke has made a change that fits a larger schema and then reverted back into Mark's wording. Um, And I think this is the strongest argument. Um, There are other good considerations, but this is the strongest argument for Matthew and Luke's dependence on Mark
0: so how about where does the gospel of john fit into all of this then um and my understanding is have you cut out there sorry can you hear me so,
1: i can hear you but oh, are we disconnected I think,
0: I think both of us have got um internet problems today sorry. okay um i think I, I can hear you i think it's the video my internet's quite bad um, at the minute as well so don't we so so yeah my, my understanding is so say with like john um or I mean there's this whole debate about whether there's like johannine christianity if that's even a thing but like my understanding with john is it's quite different in some of the terms it's using this kind of like um middle platonism philosophy that's in there um the reordering of things um so like um the cleansing of the temple being one of the first details whereas it's at the end of like the um other gospels um, and also, there's various miracles in there, so healings of people or the raising of Lazarus that aren't in the other gospels and stuff like that. Um, so, where where does John's gospel kind of fit in? If the if the others kind of seem to be quite close, does this one seem quite unique? And then, how do we build a picture of where that comes from?
1: John is for sure weird. Um, the things that so characterize Jesus in the Synoptics do not describe Jesus in John. Jesus in the Synoptics teaches in parables. There's no parables in John. Jesus in the Synoptics talks a lot about the kingdom of God. John instead has Jesus talk a lot about himself. Um, the preacher of the Synoptics becomes the preached in John. Um, John doesn't have parables. Doesn't have exorcisms, uh, and um i I said something to the effect in the other interview that the jesus silent as a lamb before his slaughter gives a disquisition on the nature of truth in the gospel of john right when the trial before Pilate. um so it's super weird and we call it we call the other three synoptics uh to distinguish it from john because these three can be viewed together you can make a um a columnar synopsis of the three and see long verbatim agreements and see ordering you basically can't do that with john except for just a few stories um so a lot of people have said for that reason it's so different it must not have known them this must have just been a different radically different way of writing uh a gospel or you know a different set of traditions or something um and i think that's wrong um there's there's something obviously right about it it is radically different uh but the way john uses the synoptics is actually more typical of the way authors use sources in antiquity matthew mark and luke are super weird in how close they are to each other we don't have other texts that behave this way john i think uses them in a way that like looks more like what we should have expected um and there's evidence indeed that he does use them um and mark goodacre my advisor is writing a book on this it'll be coming out probably i don't know coming out in the future um and i don't want to steal too many of his his points um but one of the really interesting observations he made um, that I think is, it's he made it in the Oxford lectures, um, is that over and over and again, narrative details um, and the author of the synoptic's description of events become reported speech in John. Um, and so we have things being um, where the evangelist is telling us that this is a f- fulfillment of a prophecy or things like that, that end up on the mouth of jesus in the gospel of john um and that includes and and, yeah um and we can go into that um if that's interesting to you um but it's one indication that there is in fact dependence and i think there's other indications i mean john the baptist in the beginning of the gospel of john says i am not elijah and that's a weird thing because most messiahs wouldn't come out expecting to be a like claiming to be elijah um that's the person who comes before someone else um the who would but the synoptics say that john the baptist was elijah this seems to be a conscious rejection of a view that probably is hard to impute to the historical john the baptist but we know other christians were saying this namely the synoptics and there's some other evidence of things like that there's details um where john seems to contextualize, itso- contextualize itself relative to events in the synoptics that sort of suggest that John not only knows them but unlike Matthew and Luke expects his reader to also be reading them.
0: Someone in the chat and I've had similar kind of thoughts has has suggested you know John could be like a Gnostic gospel that somehow kind of made it into the canon. What would be your thoughts um I suppose um for that uh, sort of obvious with the uses of language and so forth but um what, what would be against that as as well what are your thoughts on the, you know that kind of suggestion
1: yeah we've had we've discussed this somewhat um on different episodes of the podcast i record a podcast with my uh colleague laura robinson new testament review um and there's two different ways to attack that i mean there's there's a kind of uninteresting sense in which that's right i think because john becomes very interesting to the gnostics or to people we describe as gnostics early on and does um reflect some sort of dualism which is characteristic of the Gnostics but I think there's lots of interesting senses in which that's also not right um first of all I should say Gnosticism is a sort of interpretive category that historians impose upon the past the people who we describe as Gnostics would not have identified themselves as part of the same group a lot of them didn't like each other we have the Nag Hammadi writings which we call Gnostic where they are writing against other people we call Gnostic as their opponents um Gnosticism is sort of a cluster of things like dualism Um, uh, and sort of um, and like some people say antipathy to the world, but even that is problematic. Um, We did an episode on this called, uh, on Michael Williams really important book called Rethinking Gnosticism, where he argues that Gnosticism isn't really a category we can use. Another issue is Gnosticism doesn't seem to have really been existent in the first century. It seems to be mostly a second century phenomenon. Um, And so the sense in which anything can be, have those features and those engagement with middle Platonism, in the first century is um, like, it's in the same sense that I think Paul is a Christian. Like Paul wouldn't have called himself that. Paul thinks he's an Israelite. I think he's a good Jew who has just been commissioned by God's Messiah to um, bring bring the gospel to the nations, right? Um, But we can say he's a Christian and that means something. And so maybe there's a sense in which John is that kind of gospel um, in that it's sort of an antecedent of sort of other ways of looking at the world. Um, But John is interested in all sorts of debates that I think Gnostics weren't. Um, There's conflicts with Judaism, with rabbinic Judaism. Chris Blumhofer is a PhD student who's recently written a dissertation on this, where the thing that seems to run through the Gospel of John, um, the the other side of the argument, so to speak, consistently looks like it's not middle Platonists or something like that. Um, But it looks like he's engaging in a sort of debate with understandings about the continuity of israel um and who um you know who is an israelite and what does it mean for god to have chosen a people and things like that and i'm not going to be able to characterize this well this isn't exactly my wheelhouse um but uh we've got another episode um martin episode uh where we talk about the apo synagogos in the gospel of john which is this uh word uh, so sort of neologism of the gospel of john that means like expelled from the synagogue and how this is a running theme throughout the gospel that reflects, um, a sort of sensitivity of the author to having been expelled from Judaism. Um, and that isn't, that isn't something we would usually associate with Gnostics, that there's this big tension quarrel about having been kicked out of the synagogue. Um, and so like, that's one, like, if that's what John is concerned with, and it's not the only thing John's concerned with, but if that's one of the big things John is concerned with, that doesn't seem to me to be particularly Gnostic, um, even if there are other things like dis- distancing itself from Jesus's suffering, like by denying Gethsemane in John 13, that does seem to sort of edge towards a less uh, less human Jesus, uh, to, to, uh, towards a Jesus who is um, sort of above it all and running things in a way that the synoptic Jesus clearly isn't.
0: So i think then so far what we've perhaps drawn out is um mark being the earliest gospel that we have um matthew and luke being quite heavily dependent upon that um and then john being in this other category but possibly having access to some of the same sorts of things so if we were to go um all the way back then right to like the the starting of uh christianity from a historical perspective um and so there's debate around is there some sort of q document or like um, you know like an aggra sayings of jesus or something like that um, and, and do we know even who would have, like, authored such things or, um, you know, are, are there different sects of Christianity simultaneously coming up with these things or is it one or um, how, how do we even get approaching that, you know, how, how do we even get to that point historically?
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things you've asked there that I'd love to talk about all of them, but um, I, I'm a Q skeptic, I'm a fairer theorist. You, I think you were muted there, sorry, did you say something?
0: Yes, yeah, so I said I could I could appreciate if I'm uh, throwing like uh, a bunch of you know you need like three or four different PhDs to even go you know to adequately respond to maybe so.
1: Can I describe the Q debate? Would is that something that would be interesting? Absol- but, absolutely. You want to talk? Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. No, absolutely. Feel free to, yeah. Good.
1: So every almost everyone alive agrees that mark on, on Mark and priority. So Matthew and Luke are using mark. Um there is a huge debate that pretty neatly divides the field on how um on something called Q. So there's about 200 verses. I think it's actually closer to 250 verses, um, where Matthew and Luke have extensive verbatim agreement that are not that's not present in Mark. And the question is, where did this material come from? Um, and the two big camps are um, they Matthew and Luke had a common source, which we call Q from Quella, which is the German word for source. Um, a, and the other camp is that Matthew um, Luke used Matthew. Um, there's, a, there's like three people who think Matthew used Luke it's not right but i'm going to set that aside for a second because let's have an interesting conversation we can talk about that later if you're interested um so how would we adjudicate between these two things well it seems to me that we don't have any independent evidence of q and that's not a big deal it's not surprising that we don't have any manuscripts of a source um we know there were lots of texts that existed in the first and second century um that christians were using even up to the middle ages that don't survive Tatian's um, diatesseron is one of the texts I work on that was a liturgical church, a liturgical document in the Syriac church that we have no copies of despite the fact that probably somebody in the 13th century was still citing it um, which is remarkable so it's not a huge deal that we don't have evidence of Q but it is a hypothetical document and so we need some reason to make us want to believe this thing exists right um, and so the the argument is that Luke's ignorance of matthew and their their mutual ignorance um, is the is the constitutive explanandum of q it is the thing you have to explain they have to have gotten this they have to be genetically connected to get this doc get this text um and it's um if they were reading each other then you don't need it you don't need to posit another hypothetical document because luke could have just copied it out of matthew um so To argue that a Q exists, people have to argue that Luke and Matthew are mutually ignorant. And there's lots of interesting debates, arguments for and against that. And I think reasonable, really intelligent people hold both positions. I'm a pharaohite because, that is, I believe Luke used Matthew, um, partially because of the argument from editorial fatigue we discussed earlier. The parable of the talents and the Minas, um, uh, which is the same parable. I'm trying to remember where that is. I have it up somewhere. Uh, oh, it's uh, That's uh, Matthew 25 and Luke 19. Um, if you read through those parables, it's the example of Luke liking tens. Luke likes tens throughout his gospel, and he changes the number to 10 um, in that parable. Um, but as he progresses through the parable, he reverts to Matthew's assumption that there's only three um, units of money being exchanged. And so Luke here seems to be dependent on the Methane form of of the parable and there's a couple examples of things like that happening and there are no inverse examples there are no examples of places where matthew seems to be t- dependent on a lucan version of a story um, and that sort of unilateral editorial fatigue going in just one direction i think is a strong reason to believe that luke used matthew and that's an argument uh, Mark Goodick or editorial or fatigue in the synoptics um, there are other arguments too um, but uh i don't want to keep rolling on um but no, that's, that's, it's, that's it's great
0: <laughs> um how how much time have you got by the way because i've got um questions from people in the chat and i've also got my own questions as you talk and bring things up that i want to ask so and i but i'm aware you're at the end of your like five hour stint or whatever so
1: <laughs> at some point my voice is gonna go out uh but i'm happy to keep going for now if i start saying okay. things that don't make any sense just cut me off
0: Okay. <laughs> no problem. Um, it's also it, it's uh, ten forty five here now, so I oh. might start um, not making sense as well with my questions yeah. in about half an hour or something. If... <laughs>
1: you end it when you choose to. <laughs> okay. Awesome.
0: Um, right. So if we're if we're going so so you don't posit that there is this kind of a Q document then um, correct, but but then. If we're looking we, we've looked kind of at textual criticism quite a lot then but then historically otherwise what what's going on culturally in the kind of environment these things are being written into um like i've seen some apologists um say talking about like oral tradition. so we you know we can know that these things are accurate because of the type of oral traditions so there wouldn't be like information lost in transmission and stuff or um people arguing from like say the genres or the uniqueness of the genres um, as compared to other kind of documents what how how does the culture of the time and what we know about it inform um, our understanding of what these synoptic gospels have to tell us
1: yeah i mean it's a really interesting question it's a hard one to answer um the the jesus dies around 33 right and then the first story about the life of jesus we get shows up 40 years later written in a language jesus didn't speak written probably in and for culture that was not jesus's own how do we get between those two is um is is the question right and the only thing we get in between those two documents or between the event and the documents um is paul writing letters to churches that are spread around asia minor and greece i mean it's and paul is this like obviously very different kind of person than jesus was um i'm not making a comment on their competing theologies or anything like that um but like he's some sort of leather worker if we take acts uh um as reliable there which i think there's probably good reason to um who travels around the mediterranean like Jesus probably didn't go more than twenty miles from his home. so that's not right. but he didn't go very far. um the the point the point is, um, uh, there's a big tunnel here which we don't know a lot about. And it seems to me the only way to figure that out short of discovering new sources, um, is to just look at the way gospel writing works. Um, and how can we know that? Well, we look at the way Matthew rewrites Mark um and adds stuff in and changes stuff um and i think also you can do a sort of uh redactional reading of the gospel of mark which sounds silly because redaction is how one text changes another changes its its source but joel marcus's commentary on mark i think is sort of the example of like what that looks like to do um which is taking first century judaism in as much as we know it from our sources and looking at the ways where um as i've talked about already i think on this podcast or was it In the conversation earlier um there are a bunch of places (laughs) what yeah
0: Um, all blood into one at this point
1: (laughs) it has there are a bunch of places where jesus does and says things that don't match in the gospel of mark that don't match the gospel of mark's own description of what jesus is saying and doing so the abolition of the law in mark 7 mark's account of the parables in mark 4 like these are places where jesus looks a lot more like a first century jew that we have from all of our other sources than he looks like mark's description of what jesus is doing um in editorial comments and things like that um and so uh that is to the extent that's the evidence we have um i think oral tradition is a whole i mean we don't have access to it um the one thing we know these things were were texts um and we don't know what mechanisms of transmission um how they work I mean the one thing we do know is it doesn't preserve accurate verbatim history um (laughs) that is I mean like there's no evidence that um the evidence that we have from doing like cross-cultural comparisons is that oral history seems to be more free with um changing things to meet the circumstances um so Good, I mean, do with that what you will, but it's really hard to know um, how to say much more about that bridging period. I mean, there and are interesting things, things you, you can say. Let me just make one more comment. Um, it may seem from what I've just said that we can just dismiss everything that Matthew and Luke add on to Mark because we know uh, uh, evangelists were interested in creatively rewriting and harmonizing the content of the Jesus tradition towards their own theological convictions. And that's true problem is there's lots of reasons to think that we that we can't just dismiss this stuff so one illustration is that jesus is teaching um on paying your um paying the minute whatever a minister or whatever you call a person like that um only shows up in paul and luke um and so luke adds in something that probably belongs to the historical jesus as attested by paul um and, and mark and matthew don't have that so there is some sort of way you were getting from at least really early traditions about Jesus to later Greek gospel authors who are rewriting their sources
0: okay. some something that say i've I've heard put out there is like um that people in this culture, you know, the authors would have like memorized the uh, Tanakh by the time that they're fourteen or something, and so basically, Any kind of stories would just be in like a a, you know as reliable as if you'd put it in a solid state hard drive or something in a computer Um, is uh, or do we do we even know that um, you know was was that tradition kind of prevalent amongst where we're kind of postulating that the authors come from what 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 are your thoughts around that kind of argument?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a claim from Josephus. Um, And Josephus is clearly here trying to represent uh, Judaism as the sort of idealized, respectable Roman um, way of living. And so, of course, he says that everyone by 14 is going to have memorized the Tanakh. Um, It is true that they engaged, um, that at least educated people engaged in extensive memorization in a way that we don't. um, And that... It was an oral culture, um, in some ways that we aren't. But Mark Goodacre has written about this too in his book on the Gospel of Thomas. Like we can really easily over-exaggerate the degree to which we aren't an oral culture. I make a podcast, this is a YouTube video. Like, <laughs> um, there are all sorts of there's orality performance part of our intellectual culture as well. Um the um there just isn't the evidence, the evidence this isn't an area of expertise that. That I, of mine um, but the evidence just isn't there that memorization and um, uh, extensive like that oral cultures preserve uh, sources or, or inf- historical information the way apologists use that and this is easily falsified by just reading the gospels side by side the synoptic gospels I mean they are creatively rewriting each other and they are contradicting on material really easily tangible things um so i don't i don't have a lot to offer you there i mean bart has got a book on this but i'm not sure how good that book is it's not one of my favorites of his the jesus before the gospels i think it's called
0: So just, I suppose, quickly to comment then on Josephus, because that seems to be one of the primary um, historical sources that people would cite for saying, you know, like, um, oh, well, you might be sceptical of this argument I've got about the Gospels, but wait a second, Josephus says, you know, um, this X or Y. Or I've even heard um, in someone arguing against um, Isaiah being like a divided book because Josephus says that Cyrus read um about the prophecy and and yeah you know like like it seems like Josephus becomes this strange authority. Um it are are there reasons for doubting things that Josephus says or um you know like how how should we approach Josephus as, as sort of this um extra point of reference alongside the the corpus of the Bible and
1: This is something we talked about in our least droval episode, um, which is what's kicked this whole YouTuber thing. I mean, us being invited by YouTubers off, um, which is historians don't approach sources and say this is or is not historically reliable, stamp it, and then you can use it that way. Historians approach sources um, and sift sources against ideological biases, um, evaluate plausible chains of historical transmission how the person would know something that they are reporting and so the example you gave Josephus on the composition of Isaiah Josephus has no idea about how Isaiah was put together and the fact that he says such is not interesting information it is interesting information in terms of we understand that ancient Jewish authors were aware of the problem and that ancient Jewish authors had interpretations. So it's a historical source for um, first and second century Jewish reception of the book of Isaiah and engagements with pagan, it's an ugly word, people don't like using it anymore, but I'm in publication using it. So I should just deal with it. Um, That they're engaging with pagan criticism. We use it like for that kind of information. Um, Josephus is obviously very important because Josephus is somebody who's writing roughly contemporary with our earliest Christian documents about things that are happening in roughly the same times and places. Um, So it's a hugely important source, but we treat it the same way we treat the gospels, the same way we we treat other sources, which you have to ask questions, sift and interrogate um, how that source can be used to talk about the events the source is purporting to describe.
0: Awesome. So, um, one thing that there's quite a lot of talk about, probably not so much in the academic biblical criticism communities, but more in the like apologetic side would be like undesigned coincidences between, um, the gospels. So yeah. are you, are you familiar with that kind of stuff?
1: I, th- I don't know why I know this argument exists. I don't know a lot about it, but I have heard something on Twitter at some point, but please do, uh, do, um, Re-narrate it to me because i'm not a so it's it's
0: essentially the way the way that it works would be like um as so as we put the you know the parts of the of the synoptics side by side and um you know we're like well this is the same event right but then we'll see that there are certain things which, certain details which get filled in by one source which are kind of left out by another source so um i I, i've not memorized them so i couldn't i think one of them off the top of my head is something like um when jesus has come into jerusalem and like in one of the gospels like one of the um what one of the apostles gets sent somewhere and it doesn't really make sense why but then in another one it's like um he's gone to get a donkey or some bread or something and then it like it like fits together and it's like well these you know these people must have been um you, you know th- these must have been accurate sources because the details kind of fit together in a, in a way that if they were just making it up they wouldn't and they illuminate the situation in this new uh kind of way um sure. is that something that would make sense from the historical method kind of point of view?
1: I don't think so um and I mean there's I don't want to um I'll avoid specifics for a second uh one of I mean obviously the I mean so the, these sources are using each other and are reading each other and there are times where very clearly they are assuming a narrative detail from the other text that isn't described um the gospel of john people argue is dependent on the synoptics because it assumes the imprisonment of john the baptist at a point I think it's in john 4 but I'd have to go look that up um but never describes the imprisonment of John the Baptist. It just uses that to contextualize another event. Um, so probably he's expecting his author to actually, his, his readers to actually know about this event as described in the synoptics, but not narrated himself in John. Um, similarly, uh, editorial fatigue is the sort is actually the um, what I described earlier is actually a sort of like assumption of things that aren't in your gospel. You've moved this to Bethsaida, but saying that we're now in a deserted place only makes sense um i mean it doesn't make any diegetic sense it doesn't make any sense within the la- narrative of luke but as a historian looking back you can see what's happened here in the composition history um and there are cases like that like the the people uh, blind not blinding but a blindfolding um and beating jesus um it's i forget the details here but matthew seems to assume a mark in detail that he doesn't bring over um so this stuff shows up in the redaction profile of texts but I mean, it doesn't work as an argument for historicity for lots of reasons. I mean, look at um, the uh, Infancy Gospel of Thomas or the proto of James. These are assuming your awareness of stuff. These are these are second century apocryphal gospels that don't find their way into the New Testament um, or um, any of the, rev- the resurrection dialogues. These assume your knowledge or assume knowledge of stuff that's in the Gospels that they've read um, and often won't explicitly name this. Um, I don't think that Joe Apologist is going to want to say that a Gnostic resurrection dialogue that is playing off of your knowledge of something in the Gospel of Matthew reveals that 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 resurrection dialogue is actually a historical witness to a real event.
0: Do you think there could be um, some argument made that, It would be more like um probabilistic that there'd be these features um if there were eyewitness accounts say rather than people draw or is that what you know do are we having to introduce like our own kind of assumptions to make that kind of distinction between things
1: i mean the whole like eyewitness accounts add detail thing um which is you know richard Bacham's argument and people like that um is easily falsifiable if you just study non-canonical literature Um, You have these second century, third century Christian texts that are added, you know, some of them are Gnostic, some of them are not, um, that are just adding in really fine details about the historical Jesus, um, or about their representation of the historical Jesus that almost everyone would agree isn't correct. Um, uh, There's a detail in the Prodivengillum of James about, like, something happens after they pass the third mile marker on their way out of Bethlehem. Um, And it's a sort of like really fine detail, because when you were writing a new story, you add detail to make it seem real, make to add verisimilitude. Um, uh, So, I mean, the answer is no. And there's other really good reasons to believe these aren't written by eyewitnesses. Matthew copies out of Mark the story of Matthew's conversion narrative. He takes over verbatim from a source his own conversion narrative, which is, not the sort of thing you do if i'm going to tell you how i became a christian i'm not going to go look up somebody else's description who is not part of this culture doesn't speak my language and use their version of my conversion account um that's a or a commission or whatever we wanted to call um matthew being called by jesus i probably wouldn't want to call it a con- conversion but it's that's the way it's usually referred to um so there there's lots of good reasons like that to think this is clearly not written by an eyewitness Let's do so, like a few more questions because i am losing my voice after doing this for yeah, several don't hours
0: worry. no problem yeah so i've got i'll i'll switch to some of the questions that are coming in from the chat then um and so if i just re- read some of these um what do you think of nt wright's work and i guess specifically it's like talking about that multi-volume sister, uh, series to the um you know the people of god uh, and yes. the resurrection of jesus
1: i struggle with nt right because um, his little book, uh, What Did Paul Really Say, was in many ways my gateway drug to academic ways of approaching Paul. Um, and I'm really, really thankful for that book because it showed me what it looks like and why it might be interesting and meaningful to read Paul as a first century Jew. Um, and to um, and I think it opened my eyes to lots of things that I still hold. I mean, it is an, it is it was he introduced me to E.P. Sanders, who I said in other places today, that was like the most important biblical scholar, I think, of the last... You know, sense boltman at least um so there's lots of good in nt right um and i really like recommending him to um evangelical conservatives because he is sort of a gateway drug a sort of in that isn't too scary to historically responsible ways of reading the new testament um i find most of his work on most of what is distinctive about paul for him i think is wrong um there's a couple of exceptions like he's got a really interesting reading of the beginning of romans four that i think is very compelling but most of what he has says this like consciousness of continue of ongoing exile and things like that things that are distinctively anti-right i think are wrong that doesn't mean he doesn't give very interesting expositions of more broad developments since CP sanders that are interesting and helpful and useful um and i think that's good his work on jesus i find interesting as a as a christian um i think he sort of can show us what a Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet might be, how that might be meaningful to us as Christians. But as a historian, I think he's out to lunch on um, sort of methodology of approaching the historical Jesus. And a lot of that has to do with just his total dismissal of the relevance of the synoptic problem of Matthew's dependence on Mark and the way Matthew rewrites Mark. Um, So there's... I mean, it doesn't mean he's wrong about everything. I think he basically, he has Mark or Jesus being some sort of apocalyptic prophet. And I think he's right about that. So, um, but I think he's, I mean, he is not the place. uh, um, He's not representative of a lot of scholarship.
0: Awesome, sorry, I was just typing a response to someone in the chat. Um, So uh, someone has asked, when are you getting your PhD?
1: My wife would love to know the answer to that question. Um, my plan is to defend about a year from now.
0: Okay. Well, today could be like a good test run for that, right? With all that. <laughs> it, can't, it can't be more difficult than like three back-to-back things. Let
1: me tell you, Bart Ehrman and Mark Goodacre and Joel Marcus, who are my on my committee, well, and, yeah. and Jennifer Canoost, <laughs> they are not going to be asking you about my personal piety, or asking me about my personal <laughs> piety or any of this <laughs> stuff. I mean, they,
0: yeah. So, um, another question then, uh, do you think that Mark used Paul's letters and, uh, could Mark be a Marcionite gospel?
1: Oh goodness. Marcionite gospel. Um, so yeah, I think Mark is aware of Pauline Christianity. I'm not sure he used the letters. I'm not sure what that would even mean to demonstrate. Um, but if you use, Matthew and the people Paul is arguing against to create a sort of backdrop of what first century Christianity looked like. Um, Mark and Paul have a lot of distinctive agreements on things like the the continued importance of the law um, and uh, a, how the cross works. Um, Joel Marcus has an article on this called Mark Interpreter of Paul. So I think he's familiar with basically Paul and Christianity. It's hard to know how you would know from the gospel of Mark if he's using First Thessalonians. Um, but I think he's familiar with the kind of Pauline argument that you find in Romans. Um Marcion at gospel? Yeah, I don't even know what that means, but clearly not because mark uh, Mark is citing Hebrew Bible, um Jewish scripture as um Jesus is fulfilling right. those sorts of prophecies. and that's what Marcion would have denied. I think that idea awesome. comes from Hippolytus. Hippolytus seems at one point to have got, Luke and Mark confused in his description of Marcion's source um but Hippolytus is unique in that every other uh, early Christian heresiologist describes Marcion's gospel as sort of a reworked version of Luke.
0: Awesome so I've got two more questions um and I've closed people asking more so we we'll, um Great. the the first is um can you describe how difficult and expensive it was to travel around the Mediterranean in the first century?
1: Oh goodness, um, no! I don't think I can. Um, I don't. I don't think I know enough about it. I don't think it's terribly. I mean, it's dangerous uh, because sea travel is dangerous, um, and I think. Uh, I think Wayne Meeks has done a little bit on this, but on sort of the um, income sociological level of Pauline type Christians, um, that is sort of like middle class doesn't really correspond to a concept we have. But clearly, someone like Paul, who is just a leather worker. Um is able to travel about the Mediterranean and um send letters across the Mediterranean. Um, my understanding is it's sea travel makes that a lot easier. The travel over land is significantly more difficult. Um, but it's not an area of expertise for me. Um, I'm sorry. no problem.
0: Um and then, so this one then was, it, you might need the context of the question was asked, I think, while um, you were giving some of your criticisms of uh, certain arguments and things. And they've said, they've said, um, is it possible um, that the authors don't care about history in the same way historical critics do? And I guess asking there, like, how how should we factor in the different understanding of history that the authors have? You know, where if we're going, you know, they didn't cite their sources, they didn't use Harvard referencing. <laughs>
1: Yes. Um, Ulrich Lutz, Dale Allison, Joel Marcus. They've each written really interesting pieces on this. Uh, Marcus's piece is called, Did Matthew Believe His Myths? Um, Lutz is his big book on Matthew. I forget what it's called. Uh, And then Dale Allison in his Reconstructing Jesus has a chapter discussing this. Um, And there's a a sense in which this obviously must be true. Um, Matthew adds earthquakes to Mark including at the stealing of the storm where it doesn't make any sense because earthquakes don't generate wind uh what to do with that how to understand what matthew thinks he's doing is difficult um obviously in okay so actually let me let me back up i think the most interesting quest gospel to ask the question about is the gospel of john because if john is reading the synoptics he is making jesus talk in a way that he knows jesus didn't talk and say things about himself that from all of his sources, Jesus doesn't say. Um, And I've often wondered if this is not analogous to the early versus late Platonic dialogues. In the early dialogues, Socrates talks in a way that is like that he probably did talk something like and that other sources for Socrates seem to suggest he talk. He he gets gets in an argument with Euthyphro over the nature of justice. But by the time you get to the quote-unquote late Platonic dialogues, Socrates is talking to people who Plato and all of Plato's readers know were dead long before socrates came to life socrates has shifted for plato from being a person who you were obviously using as a cipher for your own philosophy but also like has a, has a real resemblance to the historical socrates and the content of his teaching two in the later platonic dialogues socrates is a proxy a cipher for philosophy for plato and he ex- he has to know that his readers will know this because he's talking to people who are dead 100 years before socrates lived um, and I wonder if John isn't John's relation to the Synoptics isn't that that John isn't using narrative to interpret the Synoptics theologically. Um, and in my, I mean, this is simply a appeal to personal incredulity. But I think John has to be thinking that way. He has to be thinking no one is going to think Jesus actually said I am the light. Um, that this that this sort of stuff is a commentary on. The theological significance of Jesus in the Synoptics. A lot harder is what does Matthew think he's doing when he's adding in earthquakes or adding in donkeys. And I think there maybe it's reasonable to think that Matthew thought the Messiah must have fulfilled these scriptures. Um, they're being read that way. We know in contemporary Judaism, not all of them, but some of them, we have evidence um, that they may have been re- being read as eschatological or messianic texts. Um, and so he just makes it he's describing it in the language of scripture and in doing so introducing details um that aren't in his sources so yes and no i mean clearly they were not interested in citing their sources the way we do now um and that has some relevance um and we know historians i mean you read thucydides and people like that we know historians don't expect you to think they're giving you the verbatim words of their subjects um Thucydides is only the most famous example of this but he says like I wasn't there and if I was I didn't take notes um what I'm doing is I'm telling you what uh, the person should have said in that context um so historians don't um aren't purporting to give you transcripts of the first century um Thucydides is obviously much older but we have analogies later um and I so, if, so in that particular sense I think coming to the synoptics and expecting to find transcripts of Jesus's teaching is just is to misread what a historian from the first century would have been purporting to give you
0: awesome yeah well thanks for that um so what one person did ask one more question i said i'd okay. see if you take it but then th- but then three other people like asked more questions and i don't want to like you know although we might be going on forever affair uh, i yeah, keep kind, kind of pulse. yeah <laughs> um so um if if people want to kind of get in touch with you and um, where can they do that also your new testament review podcast with laura what platforms is that available on for people
1: thank you so much i'm on twitter as ian nelson mills the podcast is on twitter as nt review pod um and you can find us on all the platforms we're on spotify we're on itunes um and i'm trying to get us on youtube but i'm supposed to be writing a dissertation so that's been going slowly um uh and yeah you can get in touch with me uh if you want you can send me an email at ian.nelson at duke.edu nelson was my maiden name um and thanks that's that's all i got appreciate the shout out to the podcast at the end
0: yeah no problem just thanks for your time a random person contacted you on the internet and i can appreciate that you've done you know a lot of stuff before this so thanks thank you
1: so much for being there